0: Welcome back to the Car Tech Garage, everyone, where we keep cars interesting with another week in automotive history. Yeah, I'm super excited. We've got a lot of good stuff.
1: And yeah, we do. And it's been a long week it um, has been at Homer's Auto Care, but, you know, <laughs> fixed some cars, made some people happy, so. Yeah,
0: we been did our best. Week. We did our best, but man, it was run ragged. I was there till like 6.30 last night. Yep. <laughs> but hey, you got to do what you got to do. You yep. make some commitments, you, you keep them, so. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm good. I've been on our oil change rack all week. So well, well haven't been really changing though. He's been training a, a new
1: hire. And really the kid's doing great. Yeah, it's been super fun too, you know, um teaching and, and giving some wisdom, even though I haven't been around as long. It it's just kind of neat, you know, teaching the mistakes that I've made <laughs> and saying, Hey, you know, watch out for this. So it it's always fun, plus it's kinda humbling for me as well. And um, you know, just remembering some little things that I guess I've
0: forgotten over the years. It is really nice to watch someone grow and evolve faster than you did Mm -hmm. out of your experience. It it really is. It's got to be pretty cool. Well, let's go ahead and move forward here. April eighteenth, 1971, we'll go ahead and kick off this week in automotive history. Fifty years ago, the uh, Spanish Grand Prix was held at Manjuic Park. Um, Monjuic was a street circuit in Barcelona. It was only ran from 1950 to 75. Um, The 75 Spanish Grand Prix was actually its last race because the circuit was – I mean it's so unsafe. Um, in in fact in nineteen seventy five, five people were killed um, because a driver named Rolf Stolman or sorry, Stolmelin, he ran his car off the track, um, his Lola and it wrecked into the stands and unfortunately killed a couple of folks. But um even that race Emerson Fittipaldi was at that time a two-time world champion he withdrew in protest before the start of the race because he was like no guys the circuit's just not safe I'm not racing yeah it doesn't sound like it I don't I don't blame him I mean if that <laughs> that was going on I really wouldn't want to race either No, well it's one of those things you know drivers of that era you just had to be brave and and it might have been bravery skill or a combination of both but yeah it was way more dangerous than it is now. Um, Jackie Stewart actually won this race, you know, the 71 Spanish Grand Prix. He took his Tyrrell from fourth on the grid and ran it all the way up to first place. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and uh, Jackie, except pole that race, um, he ended up finishing second, uh, just a few seconds behind Stewart. Um, but yeah, really, really cool race in the cars back then. I mean, like, you know, the the between Tyrrell, between Ferrari and Lola, I mean, there were just so many cool cars in the early to mid-70s. Um, you know, in F1 racing, it's a really, really interesting time. Yeah. There's no question at all. You know, <laughs> I mean, that just sounds
1: insane that, you know, the fact that a, a track was just not safe at all, but they were still racing.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, people used to say the same thing when F1 used to run the Nürburgring. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's the same concept. I mean, you've got a picture of the Nürburgring as yep. your, as your backspit or what is it called? A wallpaper yep. wallpaper. I'm not that technically inclined.
1: (laughs) Hey, you know, it's good. But yeah, I mean, I've been to the Nuremberg ring and I can only imagine trying to drive a Formula One car around there, you know, I'm sure you could. And if you weren't racing it, you know, I'm sure you could go around the track, but just imagine, you know, 10 cars trying to all cut through the the same
0: corner at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, passing on that, it's a pretty thin circuit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, like I said, bravery and skill, (laughs) (laughs) maybe a little bit of stupidity too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you kind of got to have that. <laughs> yeah, well, just, you know, it's uh, just something to push you over the edge, yep. I guess. All right, moving forward, April 19th, all the way back in 1931. it was 90 years ago. Um, so Louis Chiron driving a Bugatti T51 won the Monaco Grand Prix. Now, this Monaco Grand Prix was pretty cool because there were 16 Bugattis in a field of just 23 cars. So it was, it was pretty close to being like a single make race. Yeah. Um. And among those sixteen were four factory team, you know, Bugatti sponsored Type Fifty ones. Um, those were driven by Louis Chiron, Achille Varzi, Albert Devo, and Guy Bouryier. So, like, if you, you know, obviously, if you're a Bugatti fan, you've already heard the Bugatti Devo, the Chiron. I mean, these were all famous racing drivers from the late twenties, early thirties, um, yeah, that were so iconic that the, now they've named vehicles after them. Exactly, the newer Bugattis. And, you know, the Bugattis obviously won. They were they were definitely the fastest cars there. But the only real challenge came from the Maserati because this was in the same era, the Maserati 8C, 2500s. Okay, okay. You know, so drivers like uh, Rene Dreyfus, Luigi Fagioli, uh, Clemente Bondietti, those guys were running all the Maseratis. Um, so, I mean, the race was almost like, you know, the, the blue cars from Molsheim and the red ones from Modena. You know, you got mm-hmm. the blue cars from France, the red cars from Italy, and they're all duking it out. And then uh, you got have a uh, poor Rudolf Caricola in his huge Mercedes SSKL, which was super uncompetitive because it was just a lot larger than the other cars. It was more you know more powerful, but around the Monaco Grand Prix, it's a tight, twisty, technical circuit. It just wasn't anywhere near you know the the performance of the other cars. What's funny is the Mercedes SSKL. It actually stands for Super Sport Short. The SS is Super Sport, and then K is Kurz for short. And this was supposed to be—it's the highest performing one, the Super Sport Short Lightweight—and it was still like the biggest and heaviest car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Louis, that's kind of funny. It is pretty funny.
1: (laughs) Hey, we made this car. We're going to brand it as you know the Super Short, and it's not at all or light.
0: Yeah, Mercedes. Mercedes did not dominate this Grand Prix, not at all. But. So Louis Chiron didn't even actually, like, start up front. Um, Really? He he drew back a little bit. It wasn't until, like, mid-race that he really kind of displayed his talents. He gained back all the ground, set a new lap record time, and um, he actually finished the race five minutes at the end of the race ahead of Luigi Fagioli. Um, Five minutes? Five minutes. Well, here's the the cool thing. Louis Chiron, he's from Monaco. Okay. Yeah, so he's actually a native of Monaco. Um, Which would surprise you. You think that he would dominate the race early because he probably knew the roads better than anybody. But um, this race was kind of cool because they have, there are actually a couple of pictures of John Bugatti, you know, the owner, jumping over the bleachers and he like fell into Louis Chiron after he won.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He was like, he was
0: that excited. That's awesome. All right. April 20th, 1930, 91 years ago, just a little bit before. Uh, Klessy Cummins and obviously you guys know who you know Klessy Cummins is he started Cummins diesel manufacturing diesel engines the guy famous for shoehorning this giant Cummins diesel in a Packard and driving it cross country famously without a radiator uh, fan because he couldn't fit it <laughs> so he had to keep moving the whole time but uh, he actually set a land speed record for diesel powered vehicles just over 80 miles an hour back in 1930 at Daytona Beach um, and, and again it was a Packard Roadster and um, but, you know, just awesome. Really cool stuff. Yeah, Diesels took a long time to really get up to par. Initially, he put in the diesel because of its fuel efficiency. And that was, you know, the big thing is is it's going to cost him less to drive cross-country than anybody else. And then he started learning how to make them faster and faster. And now you fast forward for, forward to today – and you've got, you know, Cummins Power Strokes and Duramax is making 2,000 horsepower, you know, 3,000 foot pounds of torque ripping down the quarter mile in under 10 seconds. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. You know, I I never thought diesels were that fast
1: uh, until I saw some of these, you know, big yeah. trucks that they've really squeezed some power out of. And it's quite frankly impressive for something that's that large. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you see a lot of, you know, small four cylinder engines run around today and then you. Walk over and see, you know, a six, seven power stroke and just how massive it is. And the thing, if it's tuned and done right, can yeah. rip
0: down the road. Even though it's in a, you know, 10,000 pound truck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, April 21st, 1963, the fourth Emilia Grand Prix was run. And this was the first time that it was run to Formula One rules. Um, so obviously, the previous three Emilia Grand Prix were sports car races that were held in the 1950s. But again, the first Formula One event at that circuit. Um, And then, of course, from 1981 on, it was known as the San Marino Grand Prix. So this race was won by Jim Clark driving Lotus 25. Now, obviously, Jim Clark is probably one of the greatest natural, talented racers of all time, naturally talented racers of all time. In this race, he lapped the entire field except for the second place uh, driver, which was Joe Steifert or Joe Seifert. That's how you say it. So basically, it was those (laughs) two going at it. Well, not even. I mean, he was still way he ahead. Was still that he far. Was, he, he was the last guy that Jim Clark didn't lap.
1: Oh, so he just
0: couldn't <laughs> double lap him. He, yeah, was, exactly. he was the only one. Exactly. That's going to suck. I mean, yeah, right. Second
1: place going, well, oh, at least I didn't get lapped. Yeah. He <laughs> <laughs> got
0: second. Not too bad. If you first or last, Jim yep. Clark's drive by. Uh huh. Oh, man. This was actually also the day in 1985 that Ayrton Senna won his first Grand Prix. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he was still driving for Lotus at the time. That was at the Portuguese uh, Grand Prix. First of 41 Formula One race wins. Jeez. Yeah, that's awesome. That guy could drive, too. <laughs> I always look back at, you know, all these Formula drivers, and I'm like, man, they led the coolest lives. Like, I mean, I love my life. I really do. And I love sitting here with Max on a Saturday Saturday recording the podcast, talking about cars. I love my job. I love my family, my dogs.
1: Yeah, I can say the
0: same. But, like, these guys were, I mean, they they were like daredevils. You know, they're driving around 120 miles an hour in these tinfoil cars, you know, driving around in circles, you know, just looking (laughs) for some type of recognition. But at the same point in time, I feel like all of them would have done it if there was no money involved, I yeah. know I would have. Yeah,
1: I would right now. If somebody just said, hey, we're not going to pay you anything. You're just going to give you some food and a place to sleep at night. Then I probably would jump on that. Hey, opportunity. Man, I'll, I'll bring a tent. Just throw me the keys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll what drink from the
1: river. And just thinking of, you know, all of the beautiful sights that they saw as well. You know, just traveling around the world and, and that's what your job is. You know, it, it's just I, I envy that very much. Yeah, you, it's hard to not. You know, it's you know, hard not to. Literally living by the seat. Of your pants, you know, <laughs> just constantly <laughs> full blast
0: going everywhere all the time. And speaking of that, the next one up, April 22nd, 1956. Um, this was when Sterling Moss won the 56 Aintree 200, so it was a non championship Formula One race. But he actually owned this Maserati 250F uh, formula car and he entered it privately and himself, and he and he won, um, you know, in, in that Maserati. And uh, a lot of other good drivers were in this, too. Jack Brabham was still driving Maserati. Of course, that was before Brabham started making his own stuff. Um, it, you know, it's just crazy. You, know, you hop in a car that you own, just drive it to the racetrack, race, win, come back home, have some supper.
1: So what, this was essentially like a race between a bunch of Formula One drivers, but they were just driving
0: normal vehicles, essentially? So these, these were still technically formula cars at the time, but this was, I mean, this was in 56. So formula racing was still kind of getting its start. And there were a lot of uh, races on the calendar that these drivers could participate in that weren't officially part of the F1 championship points um, roster. So, you know, they would go drive these and they'd still get bragging rights and prize winnings and all that, but it wouldn't actually count towards the F1 championship for the drivers.
1: And for anybody who's done any type of racing, bragging rights, pretty big thing.
0: Yeah, just a little. Bit. <laughs>
1: I think we still argue about a go kart race that we did. I don't I know. Won. Two or three years ago. I, won.
0: I don't know. I don't know. Well, let's, what are you doing after this? <laughs> Currently, we're going go kart racing. Here we go. Uh, you're going to feel how second place feels. <laughs> All right. So let's move forward before Max and I start throwing hands or something. Yeah, um, April 23rd, 1962. Um, another one about Sir Sterling Moss, and this one's an unfortunate one because he actually crashed his Lotus Climax at the Goodwood Racetrack, and this was at uh, what was called the 10th Glover Trophy. Graham Hill actually won this one, and uh, Sterling Moss suffered a really serious injury. Um, it actually cut his racing career short. This was his last you know, competitive drive. Um, it put him in a 38-day coma, and for a portion of the time – um, Sterling actually found that he had partial paralysis on his left side, Jeez. and he did make a full recovery. But he himself always said that his reactions just weren't what they used to be, and he was never prepared to go back and competitively race again. That's that's got to be a
1: terrible feeling, you know, especially in in the '60s as well. Yeah. You know, we don't have the medical care that we do nowadays. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just. That would be a really tough pill to swallow, you know, saying, hey, yeah. I could probably race again, but I just know I'm not as fast
0: as I used to be. Exactly. And, you know, it, it kind of takes, a you know, something to admit that as well. But, yeah, nonetheless, I mean, could you imagine? Because Sterling Moss was a very competitive driver. And, you know, people still know and his name today. Mm-hmm. And— you know, his racing career got sh- got cut short just like a lot of other ones did. You know, Jim Clark is one of those people. Graham Hill is one of those people. Ayrton Sen is one of those people. And, you know, all of these drivers put on fantastic performances and gave their all to their craft, which was racing cars. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of them got taken from us, and some of them, you know, basically realized that they, you know, just weren't built for it any longer. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's always kind of weird to, you know, browse through history. And see the decisions that all these drivers have made because they're all very intelligent guys, obviously. I mean, it it does take an intellect to be able to drive that fast and know when the car is going to respond and, you know, know the layout of these tracks and each little, you know, idiosyncrasy. And, you know, it takes a lot of brain power to be able to do that where you're doing 100 plus. Yeah.
1: And you're making, you know, hundreds of judgments, you know. Almost a second. I know yeah. our brain doesn't work that fast, but essentially. But it kind of does. You're we just don't realize it. That fast, you know, basically taking screenshots of the track, how you're going to turn, how you're going to move, you know, just so many calculations that are going into it mm-hmm. um, at any given time. And it's just amazing to see these guys, you know. I just always laugh to think of what would the life of a, a retired Formula One race car driver would be. And I just like to think of them like racing through the, you know, a grocery <laughs> store. Like, all right, you guys, we're going to get the groceries as fast as we possibly can. Get there.
0: Let's go. Let's get out. In and out in seven minutes yep. flat. <laughs>
1: Uh, that, that's just always, like, the little joke that I like to follow. If, if I was, you know, a Formula One driver and retired, that's what
0: I think I would I would probably be doing. Yeah. I always like when everybody, like, criticizes all these different drivers, like, oh, you know, he he made the, the wrong decision here, this and that. I can't believe he did that. I mean, like Max said, you're making hundreds of decisions in a split second. And, you know, not to say you can't sit there and, you know, call these guys out for making all these mistakes when the likelihood is that you would have done nowhere near as well as they would have in that situation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like when people watch boxing or fighting. Oh, if I would have been in there. Yeah, if you'd have been in there, you got knocked out. You know what I mean? (laughs) Or not even that, just the the stress of
1: of being in first place or winning, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever sport that you're in. You know, there's a hundred times you could look at football, basketball, that decisions are made and they're the wrong decision. But you know what? They had to make the decision or the pressure that they were in. And that's just ended up what happened. You know, yeah. it, it is what it is. It's life. But, you you know, learn
0: from it, you move forward. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. That's 100% right. All right, last one up here. April 24th, 1908, 112 years ago. This is a pretty interesting one because, you know, I feel like this guy didn't really, I guess, kind of get all the credit he deserved later in life, but he was very, very popular early on. And that's Ralph De Palma. Now, some of you old-timers may know who Ralph De Palma is, and you may remember you know, all of his uh, battles with Barney Oldfield and all that stuff back in the 20s. But on this day, 112 years ago, in 1908, he made his racing debut at the Briarcliff Trophy Race in Westchester, New York. And De Palma would go on to win nearly 2,000 races in his 25-year career, including wins at the Vanderbilt Cup, the Savannah Grand Prize, and in 1915, he won the Indy 500. 2,000 races almost. That's insane. Yeah. So, I mean, he's obviously famous both for his domination in Indy and his failure to win any more than one time there. He only won once, but he competed a lot of times. <laughs> um, and when he won, he actually had the record of leading laps. He, he led 613 laps at the Brickyard, um, and that was over his 10-year career, and it stood until it was broken by Al Unser, and it took all the way until 1987 for Al Unser to actually beat that. And, and for those of you guys who are into indie racing and NASCAR, you know who the answers are and how dominant they were during that time frame. Mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, De Palma became a national icon basically on the basis of, you know, his competitive edge and his skill in a car, but also, he was a pretty good looking dude. I mean, he was charming, you know, ladies loved him. So everybody showed up to look at his race and, <laughs> you know, he, he was Italian. He was born in Italy. He immigrated to the U S um, you know, and he, he won in all sorts of cars, held land speed records for brief periods of the time. And, um, but his one, of the, one of the things he's probably best known for apart from his Indy 500 win is his match rivalry with Barney Oldfield. You know, the Barney Oldfield was kind of like the rogue of the racing world, you know, so he would always play the villain, And then, you know, or the antagonist, and then De Palma would play the good guy, the protagonist, or the the white knight persona. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, truth be told, and a lot of people always said this, Oldfield was actually the more talented driver. Barney (laughs) Oldfield, he he just was around so long ago, Mm -hmm. and the cars that he was driving, you know— there, there weren't many cars around at the time, so you don't really have no. a, a good benchmark to judge. But he was a very talented race car driver. I would love to see what he could do in a more capable car, you know, if you line him up against even people from the 60s. Um, and we also
1: have a podcast, you know, kind of talking about Barney Oldfield and his life and, and how he got to where he was. So I know it's separate from from this week in history, but you know, yeah. if you guys want to learn more about Barney Oldfield... It's definitely something to check out.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the story of of Henry Ford, Barney Oldfield, bicycles to race cars. Check that podcast out for sure. I think that was a pretty good one. It absolutely was. Yeah. Well, I think that about wraps up this week in automotive history. Thanks so much, everybody that's downloaded the podcast and has listened so far. We've also got um, a couple videos up on YouTube. Yeah. And if you guys have any comments or input, feel free to hit us up on social media. Let us know what you want to hear about, you know. I'd love to talk about it. Please do, you
1: know, make sure to contact us or at least follow us. You know, we love the support um, and getting some input
0: from you guys. Yeah. So thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Car Tech Garage. Hi. This podcast has been brought to you by Almer's Auto Care in Cincinnati, Ohio, providing service beyond compare since 1936.